This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, a lot of hidden back and forth certainly going on between the U.S. and China, specifically from President Trump. As you heard from Charlie, we are expecting to hear from the president in some form or fashion later on this afternoon. We'll bring you that as soon as it happens. More details as they become available. In the meantime, let's go to Sean Donnan. He is our senior trade reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from Maryland. So, Sean, walk us briefly through what we've seen today. Started with China, pre- moved to the president. We may ex- we're expecting uh, to hear more, but bring us up to speed. Yeah, so another remarkable day in the trade wars. Uh, the um, good to do it to Pat Benatar uh, this time. <laughs> the look, what we started with was something that was really an expected move by the Chinese. They had telegraphed this. Uh, ahead of time. This was their response to Donald Trump's latest tariffs, which are due to take effect September 1st. They announced a new mix of 5 and 10 percent tariffs on something like 1,700 different products, uh, hitting things like U.S. crude for the first time. But a lot of it was kind of the familiar cast of characters. Soybeans took another hit uh, in, these, in, in, in these tariffs. Then we had uh, Jay Powell, and I don't think we can write him out of the trade script today, um, speaking in Jackson Hole, uh, talking about and really signaling in the speech that, that he didn't have much control over one of the big things impacting both the U.S. and global economy, and that is trade policy. At one point in the speech saying that is uh, the responsibility of Congress and, 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 and the president. Um, and the president seemed to, to notice that and fired back uh, after the speech, likening um, or asking the question whether Jay Powell was a, a bigger enemy of the United States than Chairman Xi of China, um, and then going on to promise this uh, his latest uh, retaliation against the retaliation from China, uh, and we're waiting for the news on that. Look, the, the obvious thing that we're all looking for would be another um, uh, escalation in tariffs. The, the tariffs, the new tariffs that take effect September 1st on about $110 billion uh, in imports from China are set at 10%. In the past, Trump has uh, raised that to 25%, which seems to be his preferred number. So we could look for something like that. Um, Analysts and some folks close to the White House say that would be an an, an obvious move. Um, But, you know, this is a Friday in August where if everyone's trying to run away and get some peace and quiet yeah. uh, in the trade wars, we're going to get anything but. Things are escalating. Certainly no peace and quiet today. I want to read a line from one of President Trump's tweets earlier today. He said, our great American companies are hereby ordered to immediately start looking for an alternative to China. Sean, is he legally allowed to order companies to return to the U.S.? 
Well, he sounds a lot like uh, uh, what a Chinese president might say there, doesn't he? I mean, he kind of, you know, one of the big complaints uh, that you hear from uh, from the administration has been over state-owned companies and, and the kind of state direction of the economy uh, there in, the, in, in China, and this uh, feels a, a lot like that. The president, of course, doesn't have any legal authority, really, or he has very limited authority to... Um, uh, order uh, the private sector and uh, companies to pull out of a big market, uh, but he does have lots of ways to make life difficult for them, and that's certainly what tariffs have done. Uh, and he's got other ways that he could raise the, the pressure on them. We've seen that with the actions against Huawei, with you know a ban on doing business with a big company there. There's other ways. There's other kind of national security tools uh, he could use to go after tech companies and some some specific uh, technologies. That may be why the, the, a lot of tech stocks are taking a hit uh, today. But you know, overall, the um, uh, he doesn't have the authority to, to order American companies to do anything, really, but he certainly can make life difficult for them. Right. And so given that we don't know exactly uh, what he's going to do, what's the next step in all of this, sort of setting aside the president's move? What's China's next move? What What do you think people are anticipating as we take like a slightly longer worldview here, Sean? Well, if we take the longer worldview, this is another um, – Step down the kind of road of no return to to it to, to a deal. This is you know the, the big fear uh, that we've seen markets exhibit this summer is that um, uh, some kind of resolution in, in these trade wars is getting further and further away, and that as a result the economic damage from 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 tariffs and what they force in terms of a re, rerouting of supply chains and just the cost associated with that and and the kind of damper on the economy that you see from the uncertainty around these trade wars and we're going all of that just kind of extends out even further uh you know yesterday larry kudlow was trying very hard to talk up uh the talks that were going on between uh, kind of working level officials um, here in the U.S. And, and in China and raising the possibility of face-to-face negotiations come September, it feels like you know, less than 24 hours later, we are so far away from that right. um, today, and it's hard to see a road back. Indeed, indeed. All right, Sean Donnan, always great to get your perspective. Senior trade reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Maryland. All right, so Sarah Ponzak, we have been sort of prepping for this interview. I love talking about real estate. No one better to talk about it with than Diane Ramirez. She is chairman and chief executive officer of Halstead. She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Great to have you here with us. It's great to be here. Thank you. All right, so we look around this city. Everybody looks to New York City for so many things to sort of set the tone. What's the tone in the real estate market right now residentially? I think get in now. It is such a great time. We have been over two years correcting in our luxury, and we are correcting across the board. We've got interest rates that are beyond fantastic, and I believe we are at the end of our correction. Mm -hmm. So get get in. in there. Bloomberg News had a story earlier this week about 
prices for apartments in FIDI, saying that prices have really come down. Is this select to FIDI, or is it really across the board when it comes to neighborhoods? The financial district. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, sorry for my slang. Sorry for my slang. I love it. FIDI it is. Uh, it's, it's across the board, but it's a lot of... It depends on inventory, mm-hmm. and you see a lot of new inventory coming in in the FIDI area. So, of course, it's going to impact price, supply, and demand. Well, and nearby to that, Diane, you know, we've seen this huge amount of development on the west side, Hudson Yards and everything that's going on there. How has that affected both the inventory and some of the pricing and, and the demand? Well, it, it's increasing the inventory, and so therefore These you're are making, high end, but it's very high end. Yeah. But that is where we have the most inventory, okay. so it, it is impacting prices. But all of that is good. It's we're clearly in New York in a buyer's market. What about when it comes to size? I mean, is it better if you're looking for a studio or a one bedroom or a larger apartment that may have three to five bedrooms? Say right. Well. If you're, if you're a buyer, the larger the better, because that's where we have the most inventory. Entry level, it's still good inventory compared to what we've had in years gone by. So choice is definitely there. But the larger you are, the higher your price, right? Uh, the better your choice, and your it will be the most negotiable. So talk to us about the buyers who are out there, because I feel like one of the big questions and certainly one of the trends over the past few years in New York City has been foreign buyers coming in, you know, people, you know, sort of returning from the suburbs or sort of gravitating toward the big cities. Help us understand some of the nuances there. Well, the the real buyers are our local people. Okay. And when I mean that, I mean it's our, you know, tri-state. Um, and, and New York City, it's a magnet. It's right. where you just want a piece of it. The foreign investors are here but it's always been a much smaller percentage of buyer than anybody thinks. Right. So it's different from, say, London or Hong Kong. I mean, London, Absolutely. obviously, was such yes. a massive percentage. Yes. Right? Yeah. Even in the height of investment buyers in the city, the percentages of investors and foreigners was never more than 15 or 20%. That's really interesting. Very interesting. Yes. I'm curious, you talk about it being a a buyer's market. Is there a lot of competition then out there? If you have an offer, if you find a residency that you really, really like, do you need to get an offer in really quickly? You're, we're out of those days. Uh, (laughs) If you love it and you want it, don't hesitate. But, um, you usually don't have someone over your, over your shoulder. All right. We talk a lot on this show, and I know Sarah and I talk about it. She and I are, um, for those of you who are listening and, and can't see us, we're different generations. <laughs> um, so what's different about the sort of younger set these days, the millennials, even some of the Gen Z that's coming into the market? What are they looking for that's different? They want to be around, first of all, they want to be around themselves. They, they, they want to be um, near the restaurants, mm-hmm. near the nightlife, where their friends are hanging out. They don't even mind having to uh, take transportation to work as long as they're near their friends. Ah. And, um, and they also have seen the other generations suffer a little bit with buying and possibly losing a little money. So they're willing to go into areas that are new but have the potential 
of the prices rising for them. So, um, and that usually means it's a little bit away from their work sort area. Sort of outer boroughs? Yes. Like, I mean, what, what are we yeah, talking no, about? What, like Brooklyn. They'll okay. go into the Bushwick and yeah. they'll go into areas. As, you know, it's a bit of a travel, but their friends are there. Yeah. And they see upside. They want upside. I'm a millennial myself, so I must say I'm very interested. Do you see sellers catering to this generation? Not, uh, when you say sellers, I think developers, right. yes. Um, uh, you know, sellers, you know, not so much. They just want to sell their place. They just yeah. want to sell. They don't care <laughs> who buys it. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Diane Ramirez, what a treat. Thank you so much for joining us. Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Halstead, uh, knowing everything about the market here in New York City. She was nice enough to stop by our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Where's the beat? I have to say, Sarah Ponzak, I have referenced back that famous, I believe it was Wendy's commercial from the 1980s, Where's the Beef? It is underneath this massive and really important feature story, I have to say, in Business Week magazine this week. Dina Shanker wrote it. She's a consumer reporter for Bloomberg. The headline says it all. The hottest thing in food is made of peas, soy, and mung beans. She joins us on the phone from New York City. Joel Weber, the editor of Business Week, is here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Dina, I got a chance to catch up with you earlier this week to talk about this for our weekend show, so check that out. There's also a really cool explainer to go along with it. How, I, I guess the biggest question I have for you is, how did this all happen so fast that Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods have just come so far into the spotlight? I think that is the question that all of these companies are asking themselves. Um, I think they've been working on these products for a really long time. Uh, They got uh, them really good. They put them out in the market. They saw a strong consumer response. But then after Beyond Meat went public and the stock market went crazy, suddenly it just became like a mania. And when you say mania... We're talking like an IPO that's basically the hottest IPO of the year with Beyond Impossible, which has had problems actually keeping its product in stores. But there's even greener pastures out there, if you will. And and what does that look like, Tina? So the big uh, battle right now is happening in the big fast food chains, um, the Impossible Whopper at Burger King has gone national. That is a huge deal. Um, and Beyond Meat has their burgers and their uh, sort of a crumbly uh, taco type uh, beef um, out in a lot of different regional chains. They have a sausage um, in Dunkin' Donuts, in uh, breakfast sandwiches, and in Tim Hortons. But really, really, the big prize is going to be McDonald's. So you mentioned these fast food chains, especially McDonald's, does it seem like there is one or the other that potentially might win out there? Do we have any hints as to who might be the first to get into McDonald's? Well, Don Thompson, the former CEO at McDonald's, is on the Beyond board. So a lot of people are really hoping that uh, that means that they have a, a nice leg up to get in there. And on the first earnings call, they were asked, you know, are you guys going to be able to handle a uh, deal with McDonald's? Do you have the production capacity? And 
Ethan uh, Brown, the CEO, he laughed and made a joke about how uh, they must have drawn straws to who to see who was going to answer that uh, ask that question. So one of the things that's sort of a knock on on the I guess the the burgers that are you know anti burgers is that they're actually made of a lot of different things, right? Like plant matter, but even other things, and and it starts to resemble almost the very thing that they set out to sort of upend, which are, you know, basically commodity style food that fill grocery stores. And, and Dina, what is what are the people at the company saying about that? And, and how have consumers sort of come to grapple with that as well? Well, it's interesting because these uh, these burgers are very highly processed and a lot of people will point to uh, especially the high sodium levels in these burgers and um, they still manage to benefit from a bit of a of a green um, or of a health halo um, that people think oh well it's made from plants that must be healthier and then they look at the nutrition facts and they they start to uh, second guess themselves um, but the the companies are handling it uh, one is I think by deflecting a little bit um, I heard David Lee, the CFO of Impossible, um, once say, well, it's not as healthy as broccoli, which, <laughs> sure, <laughs> nothing is as healthy as broccoli besides broccoli. Um, and uh, Ethan Brown has said that he gets his burger at Carl's Jr. in a lettuce wrap. Um, but I think that I've, uh, some of the newer products from other companies, like Light Life is a good example, or Hungry Planet, uh, they're really shooting for a healthier nutrition profile. And my guess is that eventually um, we will see something healthier come from yeah. Beyond Meat um, and Impossible down the road. But for now, I think um, the consumer confusion around it is, is playing uh, in their benefit. That's All right. right. Talk to us about sausage, because that seems like the holy grail of sorts here, at least as you describe it in your story. So the uh, Beyond Meat sausage is considered to be, um, by a lot of people, to be a lot better than their burger. Their burger is good, but their sausage is really great. And um, from uh, the fast food side, they've got their sausage and breakfast sandwiches at Tim Hortons and at Dunkin' Donuts. Um, They actually make these sausages, like, uh, according to recipes developed with the chain, so it's not the same sausage it's a different shape because it's for a sandwich, but it's also a different recipe um, than you would get at the supermarket. Um, and even at uh, Bear Burger, which is like an upscale burger restaurant that actually serves both the Impossible and Beyond, uh, while the Impossible outsells the Beyond Burger, the founder says that the plant-based sausage from Beyond is probably the closest you'll ever get to tricking a meat eater. Sarah's nodding that she enjoys the sausage, by the way. I so, must agree. So these, the, what, part of the magic here are the secret, secret ingredients that the companies have really figured out a way to perfect. Can you walk us through the secret ingredients and maybe give us a, a sample of your favorite one? <laughs> so um, on Impossible, the secret ingredient is um, something called a uh, soy lehemoglobin, or heme for short, and what it is is uh, like a fake blood is basically the best way to describe it. Sounds delicious. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? Um, It's supposed to mimic animal blood. Um, Heme 
um, is something that uh, is found in plants but in much lower quantities than in, uh, in meat products. So they developed a genetically engineered yeast that can produce this soy hem- uh, hemoglobin in, in large quantities, and that's their magic ingredient, and that's the one that they say is completely responsible for the, the meatiness of their burger. Now, on the Beyond side, they, uh, they're, they have a very different approach. They don't want anything genetically engineered in their product, um, and they instead work with all kinds of uh, plant materials, and they say that the way they do it is they break down the plant materials into their various parts like um, lipids, amino acids, minerals, and then they use those parts to rebuild um, a structure that is uh, very close, as close as possible to to meat. So they use right now pea protein. They also have um, like rice protein and mung beans in there, but they say they can do it with with anything, any plant or well, the, ma- it, the magic a, of food. The magic of food. It's a great, great story. Everyone should uh, check it out. We didn't even get into the role of big food in all of this because they're coming for this market for sure. Dina Shanker, great story. Consumer reporter for Bloomberg. Check out her story in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Radio. Hi ho, hi ho. It's home from work we go. All right, so we've talked so much about WeWork, maybe ad nauseum, um, but now let's talk about another up-and-comer in this space, getting a lot of funding, a lot of attention, a great story uh, recently written by Jillian Tan, our senior reporter at Bloomberg. She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with... The man himself, Amal Sarva. He is chief executive officer of Notel. That's the company we're talking about. Great to have you both with us. So, Amal, Dr. Sarva, I, I should say. Uh, so, tell us about your company, how you got the idea, and where you are now. Next, well, Notel is a flexible workspace platform. We make it easy for people to put their people in spaces. I mean, companies can't predict the future. It's not getting any easier, and the lease is the least flexible thing I've ever seen. How'd we do it? Well, I've spent my entire career inside real estate. Yeah. At a certain point, I thought maybe <laughs> I'd try to fix real estate. So the last few years we've been building this business, we're hundreds of locations all around the world, and we try to help big companies do what I think the co-working kings have done right. so well in co-working. Adamol, when we spoke, uh, you had some fighting words. You, you think WeWork could be behind you guys. They could be the MySpace to your Facebook. Can you talk a little bit about oh, why it. and also thoughts on their S1, their prospectus that they filed recently? I think that co-working is an amazing phenomenon. It's like a 10-year-old thing, and it's been growing a lot. We have just been at it for the last three and a half years, and um, there are some really important differences in what we do. We just serve big companies. We just build big spaces. It's floors of buildings or entire buildings, and it's some of the biggest companies in the world that we serve. That seems to be a little bit more attractive a market, I think, even if you look at some of the language that those guys use in their recent filings and press. Enterprise is what the office market's all about. We've been growing so fast. We went from zero to 250 buildings, 4 million square feet in just three and a half years. And I think at that pace, I mean, it's not insane to predict that we pass them in a couple of years. How does that work? If you're working with some of those very large companies, some people might assume that they can just go off and get their own space alone. How does it work with them actually coming to you? 
Flexibility is something everybody wants. And around the boardroom table, all the big executives got the button they could press. I mean, most recently, the CTO got this button so they could add as many servers as they want in a second. (laughs) But somehow the real estate guy inside that finance organization is still walking around the streets of New York trying to like build a building or lease a lease. It just doesn't make any sense. Companies prefer to be able to do things on demand. And the proof is just how many have come to us. Um, if we can go a little bit to the prospectus and what it revealed about WeWork, was there anything in that that jumped out to you and did you compare or break down the company's performance to your own? I will admit I was an interested reader of the SM filing. <laughs> As I many were. Unlikely to be an investor after that reading that I gave. It is a phenomenal business. I mean, they have built something really impressive. One of the things, though, that we feel makes our job a lot easier is how efficient we are with capital. And you can just read it right out of their public financials. The guys have raised like $13 billion to get to $3 billion in revenue. They're spending more than $4 for every dollar of revenue they've managed to accomplish. If you compare that to like a Facebook at IPO, that was like a dollar for a dollar. So the ratio is way off. It's a really inefficient capital business. Ours, I think, is five to ten times more efficient than theirs. And that's, that's one of the things that we have really always believed. It's how we built our business. It's why our business is different, and it's part of why we're growing so fast. And so with any uh, sort of inflection point like this or any disruption, I feel like we're always asking Amal, like, is this a secular change or is this just sort of like something that we're going through a little bit of a fad? What's secular about this? Has the nature of work changed, the nature of managing growth changed? What is it that fundamentally is different now? Well, a ton of stuff has changed, and it's going to keep on changing. I know that people asked in 1995 whether print had anything to worry about right. from the internet, or, <laughs> you know, whether social networking would be around when they saw how crazy MySpace was, or even like how difficult it was to buy things on eBay. eBay, if you remember, in 2005 was twice as valuable as Amazon. Yeah. That story is 50x the opposite mm-hmm. now, and I think the fun and games that were the early experience of an auction on the internet, or even of co-working, we're a clue about a bigger trend, and I think the bigger trend is a fundamental change in the way we consume and operate real estate. It yeah. is going to be different, way more different. It's only 2% of New York office now. That number is going to go higher. It's going to be 10, 15, 20. It's not going to be one. Right. Because we've seen it, I believe, in London really dramatically shift upwards in, in terms of percentage of the overall space. The future instance. is here. It's just unevenly distributed. And London is probably five times further along in the move towards flexibility. And then there's some markets like Tokyo that are half as yeah. as developed as we are here. And so Notel, which started in New York, went from zero buildings to 100 buildings in about three years. Well, we have lit that fire now in a bunch of other markets around the world. We're in a dozen cities, the biggest, densest, most productive cities in the world, and there'll be a bunch more cities in the year to come. What's next for Notel? You mentioned cities. Are there any geographic regions that you're hoping to get into soon or different ways about going and attracting investors? Yeah, and this is another way that we're different from some of the co-working kings. I mean, Part of what makes the business efficient is density. So 100 buildings, is, we're not done in New York. There's going to be 1,000, then there'll be 3,000. More and more and more deeper in the cities where we're at. Yes, there'll be a dozen or so more cities. People always want to guess which one's next. And when we're ready, we will announce. I mean, we just finished launching seven cities since January in five different countries. It has been a huge Busy. roar for us. Yeah, and, and then we have to reinvent our business. I mean, we are deploying fundamental innovations in product and technology that make us go faster right. all the way through our whole chain. It's all right on point. It's about how we use data and how we deploy and how we build and how we rebuild, creating modular work environments. And that's what our investment is going to let us do. All right. Great stuff. Uh, Thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, We should also mention that Bloomberg Beta, the venture capital owner Bloomberg LP, is among those many who have invested in your company. Amal Sarva is chief executive officer of Notel, joined with Jillian Tan, our senior reporter for Bloomberg. She wrote the story on the Bloomberg. Check that out when you get a minute. I'm driving in my car. 
I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it's time for the drive to the close. One of our faves, Quincy Crosby, back with us, Chief Market Strategist for Prudential Financial, joining us on the phone from Newark, New Jersey. A familiar voice to both me and my co-host for the day, Sarah Ponzak. Quincy, great to have you back with us. Thanks very, very much. All right. So I think to use a technical term, today has been a doozy across all of the major indices. I mean, some of it seems obvious, but help us understand what's going on. Why are people, again, to use a technical term, so freaked out? Well, you know, it's interesting because there were a number of episodes in the market today. Uh, One was the uh, message from Beijing. Uh, it, it brought the futures market down a bit. Uh, and the market, you know, uh, responded. The algorithms hit back. But the market was, um, you know, accepted it and moving higher. Chairman Powell had his speech, and the market was higher um, after that. I mean, not, not, not roaring higher, but w- was climbing higher. And then the tweets hit. The first tweet um, was the, that first strike was uh, pretty much absorbed. This is the enemy. Um, tweet, but then, then the the, the tweet with the uh, "I hereby order American right. companies to get that that what, what that did was it, it it was a verbal pounding on the uh, on the on the negotiations. It was a verbal hit to the negotiations, and and perhaps sending us off into a, uh, a, a another uncertain. Um, aspect or, or facet of, of, of the negotiations. And I think that's what got the market is the weekend. And I think, um, you know, investors decided, hey, sell now, ask questions later. See if we get a, 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 a bit of a walk back, something more measured, uh, perhaps to, um, to put a bottom in in the market today. But uh, it looks like right now the market is, um, is actually losing a bit more. And clearly money went into gold, safe trade. Uh, money went into uh, treasuries, uh, and money went out of all of those areas that are vulnerable to um, to trade negotiations going off the rails, to I- use a technical term. <laughs> to go off the rails. I've got to say, whenever I have questions on the desk, I go to you, Quincy, and ask you to make sense of it all. And lately this week, we had seen lots of muted volume. It finally felt like that slow August week, everyone out on vacation. Today, you see a spike in volume. As you mentioned, we have nine minutes to the close. The S&P is trading at its lows of the day. Yes, we still have to await that announcement from the president, but it is, is it fair to say that today changed the script a little bit? It did change the script, and, and I think that's what did it. You know, the market gets used to things. It may sound odd, but the market gets bored, gets bored. Maybe the president knows this. The market gets bored with the same, the same issues, the same anxieties. Kind of, you need something new, and the mark, president gave the market something new, but, but it, it, it really questions 
whether or not, and, and by the way, uh, there are all kinds of theories floating on the Internet. I'm not saying I'm, I'm in that, you know, dark web finding conspiracy theories, but there are all kinds of theories. Is this really where the White House wants to go all out uh, verbal war with, with, with China? Uh, or is, was this just the president um, frustrated by what's going on, with it, that, that Chairman Powell did not you know, do what he wanted him to do, that Beijing came in and kind of ruined the party. Uh, it, it was this the president's instinctive reaction to all of this, and then the algorithms just, you know, having a field day? Or was this something that was actually uh, measured? It's hard to uh, imagine that. And therefore, I think, again, the market just sells off and ask questions later. We'll wait to see if during the weekend uh, there are more comments that are, again, perhaps more measured going into next week. Something I find a bit surprising is the dollar. If you look at the Bloomberg dollar spot index today, it's having its worst day in over a month since July 18th. What does this tell you for once the dollar is slipping off of its Mm -hmm. footing? Well, yeah, that is interesting because we were watching the dollar uh, during the uh, Powell's uh, speech. And the dollar moved a little bit up, a little bit down. But what this suggests is that the market thinks that the White House could engineer some sort of intervention into the currency. Uh, That's what this represents. So in a bizarre way, the president has actually gotten a weaker dollar. And so... You mentioned, uh, Quincy, that we'll obviously look for headlines uh, across the weekend. Mm -hmm. We may get some comments later on uh, from President Trump. But what ultimately makes the market feel better? Who do they need to hear from and what do they need to hear? The the market, you know, the market understands, analysts understand that we're, we're not going to have a conclusion to negotiations for some time. But the but. The market just doesn't want things to decelerate. They don't want things to get worse. And that is what not not Beijing's uh, 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 announcement this morning, but the president's comments gives you this feeling that somehow the negotiations are, again, moving into another phase. What do the markets need to know? They need to know that. Maybe things are okay, that the negotiations are continuing, that, um, that, that there's a more measured pace, that, that, that nothing is falling apart. Markets don't like when things feel as if they're falling apart. And, you know, just look at the market. I rest my case. Uh, we're not going into the close with uh, pairing, the, pairing the losses unless something hits the tape. So that's what the market wants. And also, we have a full plate of... Um, data releases next week, and it would be helpful to have an unequivocally, uh, 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 you know, clutch of uh, positive surprises in the data, because we had some data releases this week that were concerning, particularly on the service sector. So that would be positive for the market, because, again, the other worry, if there's another worry, is Does the Fed have enough ammunition in conventional monetary policy to handle 
a a a, a deceleration in the U.S. economy. Should right. that should that happen? All right, we're going to leave it there. Great to get your perspective on this day where, as you say, the market's losses are actually accelerating uh, into the close. Quincy Crosby, Chief Market Strategist for Prudential Financial. She joined us on the phone from Newark, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.